0: Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. How are you doing today? My name is Charlie. If we haven't met, I'm the senior pastor. I hang out right here after the service. Come say hi. We're going to dive right in today because we've got a lot of work to do. As you are new to CBC, if you've been here for a long time, we start off this place in this space by acknowledging that it's different than the world around us. I love what D.L. Moody says about the scriptures. He says it wasn't given for our information, but our transformation. We live in a critical world. And so sometimes we have to stop and ask how God is asking us to act different and think different and be different when we interact with him who is different than our world. And our world is critical because we're prideful and insecure at the same time and in this space, in this space, we're going to set aside the criticalness for criticalness sake and ask the question, what is God doing in my spirit this morning? How is he moving? How is he speaking? How is he revealing? Because he is. He is. So we say it like this, the move of the spirit is inward to conviction, not outward to critique. God has a message for us today in his scriptures, and we start with that posture. So we lead us in a prayer, I'll ask that you pray if you're comfortable, and then we'll dive into Matthew 12. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful that we can set aside time and recognize that you are worthy of worship, that in the middle of the busy and the chaotic parts of our life, that this is worthy of stopping down and recentering our lives around what should be in the center, and that's you and your glory and your worship and your goodness. So Spirit, today, as we open the scriptures, speak to us. We set our perspective. We set our idea of what Jesus came to do and give us a a greater joy and passion for pursuing the gospel together as we look at the words from Isaiah today. If you're comfortable, just... Take a few seconds and say a a quiet prayer to yourself and and just invite the spirit to speak into your spirit this morning. And then I ask that you (coughs) pray for me that God might speak through the preparation and the teaching to show us more of why he's worth following this morning, why he's good, and why the gospel is our greatest good. pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said. Amen. I don't know if you guys have things that you like to read every year. Uh, there's a couple that I keep in my back pocket. And, and one of them is this commencement address given in, I think, 2005 by a writer that I like named David Foster Wallace. And he gives this commencement address, and it's called This is Water, and it, it starts like this. He said, there's an older fish that swims past a group of younger fish, and these fish say, how are you doing? And this older fish says, hey, boys, how's the water? And then they swim a little farther down the stream and they look at each other and they say, what is water? You know, it's the idea and what what the author, what David Foster Wallace was doing was challenging people's idea of what forms them, what shapes them, what molds them, what guides them, what defines what life is and what's worth living and what's good. I think that we live in a time in space where we more than anything need to ask the question, what is water. How are we being shaped by the world? Because here's the deal. Now more than any time in human history, more things are trying to shape us, define us, push us, or pull us than ever before because you have more inputs than ever before because we're always connected. There's a, uh, a woman named Renee Destretta, and she's a, the technical research manager at the Stanford Internet Observatory, and she bluntly summarized postmodern ethics with this phrase, if you make it trend, you make it true. It's the idea that so many inputs are coming in and oftentimes the loudest is what's most true. And I think the Bible kicks back against that. I think societally we have to kick back against that. I think as the church we have to stop down and say just because it's loud doesn't mean it's good. That's why as an example right now Texas is trying to ban TikTok on public devices because we don't know if it's good for our kids. It's not. I solved it, right? But but really, it's tongue-in-cheek. The question is, what goes in and what's shaping us? I think we live in a world that defines good in a way differently than the scriptures. Some examples that I've seen, found, or thought about, I think we live in a world where lust is redefined as love, where marriage is redefined from a covenant of lifelong fidelity to a contract of personal fulfillment, where self-love is valued over sacrifice and self-care beats service and self-interest is more important than selflessness. I think we live in a place where personal freedoms are no longer for the good of others, but they're places where our pride expresses itself at the expense of others, where our homes are havens to hide out from the world instead of being places for people to see the holiness and goodness of God. I think instead of the family unit as as the center of our societal good, families often laid on the altar for progress and promotion to chase a life that's not fully fulfilling. I think we live in a world where sexuality defines all of who we are instead of a part of how God made us, and then in that we lose our greater identity found in our, from our creator. I think we live in a place where the celebration of desire has done away with, and discipline is no longer, and authority is only as good as long as it plays into your autonomy. I think that's the world we live in. This is water. So the question we have today, as we dive into our text, it deals with the idea of justice. And that is a weighted word in our culture. That's a word that probably is defined along your party lines, if we're honest. Along who you voted for in the last election and what you believe to be true and how you fall on the sides of different current events and trends and issues. But what I want to do today, because Jesus gets into it, what I want to do today is talk about a biblical definition of justice. I want to talk about from my understanding what what I think the scriptures particularly the Old Testament scriptures say is God's justice because what God is doing through justice that is the plan and purpose of Christ in the world is to bring about justice it's in our passage today and so I want to stop down and look around and say what is water and what are we as followers of Jesus and what's the difference how does God define justice in this context? And so this is kind of a topical look at it. We'll get into the scriptures a lot and throw around some things. There's much more reading you can do. I, I really uh, like a book on justice called Evil and the Justice of God by N.T. Wright. Tim Keller wrote a book in the last few years called Generous Justice that is fantastic. There's a, a guy named Stanley Hauerwas that wrote Jesus and the Justice of God that's a little more progressive if you want to go there. I know I just said progressive, so half of you are breaking out in a rash. It's okay. Alright? It's good for you. It just opens up the conversation. We have to agree with everything we read, but it's good, and he's good, and he follows Jesus. Alright? But today, what I want to do is talk about how Jesus grows their perceptions in this time and place in Matthew 12 of what justice is, and how maybe he's growing ours as well. So if you get into it, uh, Matthew 12... I got to know where it just came from. So Jesus just healed, if you remember last week, uh, a man that had a withered hand, and he did something so egregious, he made somebody that wasn't whole whole, and the only response to healing is to want to kill the guy that healed. And so literally what happens is Jesus heals this man. He literally brings restoration where there was brokenness. And the Pharisees come up to him and they they say, this is not right. And our only response is to get with one another and say, how can we assassinate Jesus? And it starts in verse 15. Now then, when Jesus learned of this, their idea to kill him because he healed the dude, he went away from there. Great crowds followed him and he healed all of them but he certainly warned them to not make him known. This fulfilled what was spoken from the prophet of Isaiah. And we just see this conflict at the beginning because what Jesus is doing is pushing against the cultural norm of justice. If you're a Pharisee, you thought a couple things about justice. One, it was going to make you right in the end. Rome was gonna fall. You were gonna win. If you were literally cursed with a deformity or an infirmity in the Old Testament times, read John chapter nine. They thought it was God's plight on you from your sin or your parents' sin. And so justice wasn't deserved because you deserved what you got. It's a very harsh way to live. Justice was given to those who earned it. sounds a lot like our culture. And so when Jesus comes in and freely gives justice to those who might not in their eyes have seemingly deserved it, when it wasn't about the oppression of Rome but something far greater, they couldn't quite get it. And so he steps back he steps back from his place when he healed this man when they're trying to kill him for the first time it says that in Matthew. And he says, I'm going to go away. And it says, great crowds followed him and they healed all people. And they still wanted to kill him. And here's the first idea is that oftentimes if we push back against the justice we believe in, you have two choices. You either get on boards with God's vision or you can fight it. And they chose to fight it. Which I think is kind of amazing because Jesus is going around doing really good things. He's healing all all these people, this same narrative is found in the gospel of Mark and he's healing all of these people and they can't see the good behind it. They can't celebrate the win there. It made me think about this week on Tuesday morning as my wife and I were sitting there having coffee. Kids were screaming and crying. So it was a pleasant Tuesday morning because LISD decided they weren't going to do their duty and parent our kids that day. Uh, She laughed and and she said, I just found this, this tweet on the Twitter. I'm not on Twitter, because I call it the Twitter. And um, she passed it to me, and this is what it says. It's from a, uh, an account called Scary Mommy, which I'm in on. It says, imagine it's Sunday morning, you've been allowed to sleep in as long as you want, and you have no chores or responsibilities at all that day. There's fresh fallen snow on the ground. Your mom makes cinnamon rolls and serves you breakfast, but you're almost three, so you're blind with rage. That was my Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday. And then we thought it was going to be good. But at 8.30 p.m., LAC said, it's going to be your Friday too. Thank you so much. I'm working on forgiveness. All right? I think we start there because Jesus is doing all these good things and they couldn't see it. They had their own version of what justice was and it didn't line up with God's version of justice. And so what you get in these verses from verse 15 to 21 What you get is a break in the narrative and an interlude where Matthew reminds his people of God's justice. It's the longest quote in Matthew of the Old Testament. It comes from Isaiah 42. This is the longest place he quotes the Old Testament to a group of Jewish readers who knew the Old Testament. He's resetting their idea of what justice was because they clearly couldn't see it anymore because they couldn't celebrate what Jesus was doing. And in the middle of this moment, for the readers of Matthew, he's saying, I can't believe they're trying to kill him. Jesus is healing all these people. They don't get justice. Matthew says, let's stop down and let me remind you what biblical justice is in the Old Testament. And so this is what he says. Here is my servant whom I have who chosen, the one whom I love and whom I take great delight I'll put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. This gets to the mission of God. And just to be clear, it's a whole nother sermon, but there's underlying Trinitarian themes throughout this. So it's not just like, this is what Jesus wants to do. Same language from the baptism of Christ and a couple other places. The Father, Son, and the Spirit are in the same text together in that verse. He's saying, this is not just the purpose of Jesus, but the purpose of God for the people of God for all time. This is Trinitarian. It's a doctrine of inseparable operations, which means that whatever Jesus does, the Father does and the Spirit does. Can't separate out the good works of God. It doesn't work like that. They're the same spirit. They're the same essence. They fight for the same good. And so what he's saying in this text is just in case you thought Jesus wasn't a part of the divinity, this is all of God responding in his way to all people for the purposes of what he's going to define as justice. What you see is the juxtaposition of the delight of God versus the absolutely disdain the Pharisees had for Jesus, their response to what justice was. And it says that he will proclaim these things, which means that he will go throughout the world and talk about his message is what God's justice is for the people of God. That's the context of what we're going to get into. When it says, He will proclaim justice to the nation. So I want to stop down for a second and talk about that idea or that word justice. In the Hebrew, we're going to be there a lot today. That word is Mishpat. And so we're going to see it a couple different places, just keep your mind, when we translate texts sometimes, it's not a one-to-one, because we don't have all words for all the words they had, so we're going to see a couple different translations of it, and we're going to go to different verses and see where that Hebrew word is found in different places to, to fill out our understanding of what that looks like. And in the Old Testament specifically, there's two different kinds of justice, two kind of sides to the same coin of God's justice. And the first side is the one that we know well. It's called retributive justice. Retributive justice is what happens when you get what's coming to you. I'll read from Exodus 34. We read it last week. You kind of see love and retributive justice at the same time. The Lord, the Lord compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, keeping love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he by no means leaves the guilty unpunished to the transgressions of the fathers in dealing with the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. If you want to read Ezekiel 7.4, it's several places in the Old Testament where he says the justice of God is literally God's just dealing with injustice in our world. There's a word for that in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. It's called propitiation. First John puts it like this, and this is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We lost that word, I think, a lot as the church has kind of leaned into the love of God. And that's okay. But we lost the idea of propitiation. What it literally goes back to is Old Testament sacrifices, which means that there will be a blood covering for the curse of sin in our world. That's why a few years ago when we studied Leviticus and we looked at the sacrificial system, we miss the cost of sin because the love of God is so transparent to us now. And that's a good thing. I love, I love the love of God. It's really great. But what we miss is the cost of our sin to God. In the Old Testament, to deal with your sin back then before Jesus as a foreshadowing of Jesus. You brought like your family baby lamb to the altar and you killed it with your hands. You were reminded that your sin did this. It was very visceral. It was hard. You explained it to your kids. That idea of propitiation is the same thing, of Jesus taking our place and him dying so that we might have life. It was bloody and it was gruesome and it was somber and it was serious and it was the idea that justice demands a price for injustice, for injustice, for, unjustice, for unjust things. And here's what I know is I need, I need, I need my God to not like injustice. I need my God to deal with injustice in a way that says I love you enough to not let it flourish. Retributive justice is God taking care of the brokenness in our world in a way that matters. Not just saying I'm gonna turn a blind eye because that's not loving and that's not good. Propitiation is God's answer to injustice in our world where Jesus paid the price. I love what John Stott says. It is no help to our understanding to pretend that a loving God would not require an atoning sacrifice because he would not punish sin. This would be to destroy the truth that God is light and to remove all grounds of morality. The nobler biblical way is to magnify the love of God by seeing at what tremendous cost atonement was made, and therefore of what amazing length, devotion, and scope his love is capable. John Murray says it like this The doctrine of propitiation is precisely this that God loved the objects of his wrath so much that he gave his own son to the end, so that his blood should make provision for the removal of his wrath, making the children of wrath the children of God's good pleasure. Let's not lose the cost of our sin to Christ. That's what we do in Holy Week coming up in, in, in about eight weeks. Retributive justice is when we make people pay for the pain that they've caused in our world. And God will do that. And if you're a follower of Jesus, it's done through Jesus. I had a uh, a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend, I'm saying this, just don't ask me who this is at the end of the service. I'm not going to tell you, all right? Uh, I heard a story once about they had a small kid that was a biter. You guys had small kids that are biters, yeah? And so this mom was dealing with the kid, and the kid was a biter and a biter and a biter, and one day, the mom was just like, I've had enough, and she bit back, all right? Now, this isn't called CPS bit. Let's calm down a little bit, all right? This is just I want you to know that it hurts me, and here's what I know about that when I first heard the story is, I want to say like, oh my goodness, but the first thing I thought was yes, you know, because I've been bit by my kid, and I get to a place of it's okay, don't do it, love and compassion, but I start with, I'm going to get you right back, little man, you know what I'm talking about? Retributive justice, if you cause pain in our world, we want you to pay for the pain that you caused. And, and, and what God does is so that pain is paid through the work of Jesus on the cross, through uh, the propitiation of Christ, through him literally shedding his blood and dying for you and me. It's an adverbial clause on which we can describe the love of Jesus. This is the depth through which he loved you. We know retributive justice. It's often called fairness. You get what you deserve. We're good with that one. We, sub- we celebrate that one. We promote that one. The problem is... At least in the Old Testament and most of the New, that's not the only way justice is described. The problem is in the Old Testament that literally there's 400 times we see mishpat in the Old Testament that nine times out of ten when that word is used, it's not simply talking about retributive justice. It's talking about restorative justice. There's a big difference there. God is for both of them, but our society and the water that we swim in tells the story of one over the other. And what you have to know about restorative justice and what it, it does to the theme of justice is retributive justice is simply just fairness enacted. Restorative justice combines the idea of fairness with the highly relational nature of God. Because you have to understand is justice isn't just a code we keep. It's at the character of a God who's highly relational. In Psalm 146, he talks over and over again about God who executes justice for the oppressed is verse seven, who gives food to the hungry, who frees the prisoners. Justice isn't just a code that we keep. It's a character of God that we see throughout creation and how he deals with us. Justice isn't just laws being broken or not. It's literally the outworking of the character of God on the people of God in a world that's broken. You cannot, you cannot remove the justice of God from the relational nature of who God is. And so when we look At the idea of the justice of God, you have to see, one, it's the fairness of God that makes place and and, and repays the the, the pain that's caused through the brokenness of the world. But two, the justice of God is a highly relational proposition that deals in the world of how we relate to one another. So, So another way that you see this word, mishpat, in the Old Testament is often correlated with the word for righteousness in the Old Testament over 50 or 60 times see those words together and understand what that means. You have to understand righteousness. In the Old Testament, that word righteousness, we would describe it as a set of codes. Like your righteousness is based on how good you keep some laws. But in the Old Testament, righteousness really had little to do with the laws and more to do with our relationship with one another. So if you were found righteous in the Old Testament, it meant that you were in right standing with the people around you. Rules regulated that, but it wasn't about the rules. When my daughter hits my son or my son hits my daughter or my daughter hits me, they don't go to time out because they broke the rule about hitting. They go to time out because they broke the relational nature of us together. Righteousness in the Old Testament is all about the flourishing of right relationships within the people of God. So they put some rules around that. So when in the Old Testament, it talks over and over again about the mishpat of God, the justice of God being a part of the righteousness of God, it correlates the two, the code of God seen in the relational nature of the people of God. Let me give you a couple verses. Psalm 33, 5. God loves righteousness and justice. Psalm 106, 3. Blessed are they who observe justice and who do righteousness at all times. Proverbs 21, 3. To do what is right and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. What we have to do is understand that retributive justice is about a code or fairness. Restorative justice brings back the relational nature of God's character in the conversation of justice. So justice isn't just revolving around what you do, but who you are. And it's important to know that the idea of justice is based off the fact that we are created in God's image, and so we're owed certain things because of it. You know that we are the only creatures that have like a, an idea or a code for justice? Look, I love dogs, but they don't know what justice is. Spend 15 minutes and watch any National Geographic animal show, and those things are vile and cruel, You know? It actually comes from Genesis 9 after the flood. God is giving new commands. He's repeating the endemic covenant uh, to be fruitful and multiply to Noah and his family. And he says, you, you can eat anything you want now. You don't have to be vegan anymore. And all God's people said, yes. And he says, but, but, but if you're going to spill the lifeblood of a human, your blood has to be spilled. And he says, why? He says, because you're created in God's image. And that's a step too far. And so when we talk about justice from Abraham to Adam to us now, it's all around the idea that we deserve certain things because we are made in the Imago Dei. It's, it's all about recapturing the relational nature of justice in the first place, not just to make people pay for the pain they've caused, but to put back into the conversation of justice, the relational nature of God for the people who carry his image. That's why I love what Uh, One commentator, Bruce Waltke, wrote a huge volume on Proverbs, and the first 100 pages are nine different aspects of thematic work in Proverbs, from justice to righteousness. And he says, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. It's a relational nature we have to see the lens of justice through. So Restorative justice starts with where we all start. It moves past fairness to what's found in all of us, the very image of God and what's owed to us because of it. It's proactive steps to redefine the dignity found in each person person because of the fact that we're made in God's image. It's not just a code we keep. It's how we treat one another. Let me give you a couple examples in the Old Testament. Uh, One is Deuteronomy 18. And what Deuteronomy 18 is doing is it's talking about the different allotments of the people of God in the promised land. And so you guys know that there were 12 sons of, uh, of Abraham and there were 12, 12 tribes of Israel and, and all of them got parcels of land except for Judah because they were the priests, Right? And so as they were the priests that went around, God said, you're not going to get land yourself. What you're going to do is you're going to like walk among the people and be my representative and do all the priestly duties. And because of that, you're not going to get a farm stuff. And so he says in 18 verse 2, they will have no inheritance in the midst of their fellow Israelites. The Lord alone is their inheritance. Just as he told them, verse 3. This will be the priest's fair allotment. That's our word justice there, mishpat. They, this will be their fair allotment from the people who suffer or offer sacrifices, whether bull or sheep. They must give to the priest the shoulder, the jowls, and the stomach. This is where literally we get the word tithe from, the 10% that went to the priest. Do not give me stomach at the end of the month, all right? Just FYI. <laughs> Somebody's going to be cute, be like, I got this for you. Don't keeps going, but it says, you must give the best of your grain, your wine, your olive oil, and the best of your wool when you share your flocks. Verse five, for the Lord God has chosen them and the sons from all the tribes to stand and serve in his name permanently. What he's doing there is saying, justice isn't just giving them what's due because they've been hurt. It's literally giving them what's due because they're made in my image and they don't have opportunity other places because I've given them other tasks. It's saying, this is how we fight for the flourishing of all people. This is justice. It's not just reactive to pain, it's proactive to the Imago Dei in all of us. He, he goes on to say, and throughout the Old Testament, Zechariah 7 is a good example, so is Deuteronomy 18, 19, 24, 25. But, but there's a, uh, uh, if you will, there's a, a quartet of the vulnerable given throughout the Old Testament. It's gonna be the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. You see that throughout the Old Testament. The widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. This is what Deuteronomy 23, 24 deals with. It's how to deal with those people in your society. And and there's a reason why the Old Testament calls out specifically the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor, because it was an ancient patriarchal uh, uh, farming society, and those were the people that either didn't have families or didn't have farms. And so because they didn't have families or farms, they had no way to make income. They were often easily forgotten. They were easily uh, uh, outcast and downtrodden. And so in that kind of community, the four, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor are often the, the, the first to fall through the cracks and not connect to family or land, which is how literally you lived. And so a good example of justice is seen in the gleaning laws in the latter part of Deuteronomy 24 in Leviticus 19 as well. It says in verse 17 and 19, do not deprive the foreigner or fatherless of, there's a word again, justice, mishpat, or take the cloak of a widow as a pledge. When you're harvesting in your field, And you overlook a sheaf, do not go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the father, the widow, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so the Lord your God may bless you and the work of your hands. Here's what he's saying, and this is important. I think what we're doing, the nuance of what we're getting at is do we see charity to one another as justice or mercy? And there's a small difference in between there. And what, what the Old Testament writers would say is when you talk about justice, especially gleaning, so gleaning was basically when you harvested your crops, you couldn't do the corners. And you actually, if you went to your olive tree, you would you would hit it to get the fruit down. And you could only hit it once. That's it. You couldn't hit it twice, you could hit it once. And whatever fell was yours. And then people could come behind you and they had to do their own work. This isn't charity without work. They did their own work literally in the Hebrew when it says that they get to glean, the words there imply ownership to the people that needed help. So it's life-giving and restorative where sometimes charity without work involved isn't those things. It makes people dependent, not independent. And so what he does is he says that when they're going to go and they're widows and they're orphans and they're fatherless, justice is giving them the dignity that the Imago Dei defines them as worthy of getting food and clothes and the things that they get because they're made in my image. It's not charity, it's justice. And there's a difference there. It moves us fundamentally differently in how we respond. I like what Author Christopher Wright, theologian, says says the rules that follow in that passage were rights, not charity. In God's sight, a widow has a right not to be robbed of essential clothing to get a loan. In the gleaning provisions in verses 19 to 21, they're rights, they're not handouts. Restorative justice isn't giving someone what they don't deserve. It's giving them back what God gave them when he created them, the dignity of the Imago Dei in all of us. So God's view of justice begins with the imago Dei. Fighting for the flourishing of the vulnerable isn't a handout, it's a return to how it's meant to be. God's justice is more than what's due. It's what's owed because of the image of God in all of us. It's a different way that we talk about how we live in our world. And this is is where there's nuanced conversations here. Because justice and mercy and what it means to be charitable, it's nuanced in how we do it and when we do it and how often we do it. And, and the Bible, by the way, this is a, again a whole nother sermon but worthy of saying, the Bible makes clear distinction for independent ownership. Actually set the tone for independent ownership in the A&E for years and years and years. It means that you have a right to own your stuff. We are made as co-owners in our world where God says, go, run, thrive, be, use all these things that are yours for a better and greater good. Individual ownership is intrinsic in the scriptures, but also charity is also the idea that not all your stuff is yours is because all good gifts come from God. There's a tension there. They can't be solved by socialism. It can't be solved by, you know, aggressive capitalism at the same time. As followers of Jesus, we live in a middle ground of both. In Deuteronomy, I think it's 23, he lays out the fact that he says, don't let people glean you to death. That's not okay. It's not good for them and it's not good for you. What he's saying when he talks about justice is it's not just retributive, it's restorative. It brings people back to the image of God that they were created for, that because the world is broken, they're robbed of. The most popular verse on justice is probably Micah 6.8. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God. So the idea that this Mishpat, this justice, is rooted in mercy and motivated by humility. And, and the point that it's getting to is that biblical justice is when we decide that we want to make other people's pain our problem, especially the vulnerable. It's not just about paying for pain. <laughs> It's about adopting pain from the vulnerable because. In that verse two in Deuteronomy 24, when it's talking about why they should glean, it ends, I think in verse 22, it ends by saying, do you know why I should do this? Because you were once slaves in Egypt and I did this for you because the justice of God demands that we treat people with dignity because we're all made in the Imago Dei of God. It's not just paying for the pain you've caused. It's the people of God saying, your pain is going to be my problem because I understand who you are and how you're made. And there's nuance there. But the difference is what motivates us. And There's a big deal in that. Proverbs 29.7 says, The righteous care about justice for the poor, the wicked have no concern. James 1, to quote the New Testament Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So what... What Matthew's doing in our text is he's describing from the Old Testament what the justice of God looks like. And he's saying, this is justice, the retributive nature of God to fix the brokenness in the world and not let it go unpunished because that's not loving, but also the restorative nature of God, meaning that we owe things to people because they are made in the imago day of God. It's a separation of, of the difference between charity and deservedness. It's a differ, if it's a differentiation between what people deserve because they're made in God's image and what we give them on top of because we want to be compassionate and merciful. And there's a difference there. I like uh, what he says in the middle of the text. He says, he will not break a bruised reed or extinguish a smoldering wick. And that phrase is there, adverbial, adverbially to comment on the kind of justice God brings. Again, it goes back to the quartet of the four, of the vulnerable. In that time, the uh, bruised reed, you used a reed for a measuring stick. And so when it was bruised or broken, you threw it away because it had no good anymore because it was not worthy of anything. The, the idea of a smoldering wick, you used linen for fires, and when it was smoldering, it was smoking. It didn't light anything, didn't provide a lot of light, and so you usually threw it away and didn't use it anymore. He says, he will not break a bruised reed or extinguish a smoldering wick. It's a theology of redemption and not replacement that's integral to how we understand how God works in our world. Because we are a people that would much likely, much easier replace than we would restore. My wife and I are looking to remodel our back patio. So we had a couple electricians out and I'm looking up outdoor TVs. And I was... uh, I mean, eggs cost as much as TVs do now. You know that, right? Uh, like, the, I was watching, looking at the stat. Eggs are up, I don't know how much, but TVs are down like 48%. You can literally get like 65-inch TV for basically, you know, like a dollar and a carton of eggs anymore, you know? And uh, I was listening to a guy talk about TVs, and he said, hey, don't waste your money on an expensive outdoor TV. Just buy a $300 50-inch. And they said, if it's really hot where you live and it breaks in a couple of years, buy another one. It's just as cheap. We live in a world that wants to replace rather than restore. And what Jesus is saying is, My justice looks at those who are broken and doesn't say they're worth replacing, they restore them. That's the gospel. God like didn't look at us and say you're not worthy of saving, but that you are. And so his justice demands no less because we're made in his image. And the difference between what's owed and what's given is the force by which we fight for justice. My favorite TV show in the world is a show called The West Wing. I would quote it to you every week if I didn't think you'd get sick of it. Um, and we live in a conservative place, so you didn't think I was super progressive. <laughs> uh, I have plaques in my office, somebody got me a coffee mug with a quote from The West Wing. I love how this guy writes. And there's a, uh, an episode where the speech writer, who's really talented, is talking about his speeches writing, and, and he says, because he's going through it like four and five and six times, and they say, Sam, like, w- when's enough? And he says, we're not there yet because, he says, I love this. He says, the difference between a good speech and a great speech is the energy with which the audience comes to their feet at the end. Is it polite? Is it a chore? Are they standing up because their boss is standing up? He says, no, we want it to come from their socks, The difference between what's owed and what's given, between mercy and justice, is the force by which we fight. Justice demands that we stand up for those who can't, not because we want to or we should, but because we have to, because it's owed to them because God's image is found in them. Biblical justice is retributive and restorative. It's more than making people pay for the pain they've caused in our world. It causes us to make the pain of the vulnerable our problem because that's exactly what Jesus did for us. It changes the depth of our motivation. Both are good. But the justice of God can't just be seen through a code that we break or don't break. It's got to be seen through a relationship and the image of God that we all carry with us. And so in our text, it says that he's going to do it. He talks about wicks and reeds. It says that he will not quarrel or cry out. He won't hear his voice in the streets. And what's meant by that, he gets into the how a little bit. What's meant is, uh, that word for quarrel in a couple different places is wrangle. It's a hard word to translate, but it literally means like they Pharisees would go through the streets and and yell about the justice of God, but they wouldn't do anything about the justice of God. So Jesus says, I'm not going to be somebody in the streets making a lot of noise and not doing anything. I'm literally going to live this out. Do you guys watch any NBA anymore? I love the NBA. I thought for a long time I was going to play in the NBA, and then I turned four, and I looked in the mirror. I... It would be my job if I could pick my job. I love basketball. And so I watch it. And one of the hardest things to watch is on every drive, every time, I'm not talking about Luca, but I really am, every drive, every time, no matter what happens, this dude hits the floor and he looks at the refs and he pretends like he just got stabbed seven times. And then he doesn't get back on defense anymore. He's too busy talking about the thing that's supposed to matter to actually make a difference to his team. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be about it. That's why when his ministry started in Luke chapter 4, he walks into the synagogue. He opens the scroll of Isaiah 61, and he says, Today I've claimed this. Free will be found for those who, who are captive, and sight will be brought to the blind. He reads this scroll about Messiah. He sits down, and he says, Today that's done right here in your midst. And people are like, that's bold, you know? So Jesus says, I'm not just going to talk about it. I'm going to be about justice in this world. That's why it starts this passage by Matthew saying, and he went around and he healed. How many people? All the people that came to him. Because he's about restoring the dignity that should be given in the imago Day in a broken world. It's not charity, it's justice, and there's a difference. It looks the same, but there's a difference. And then he ends by saying, and in his name, the Gentiles will have hope of all the phrases that would have offended a first century Jew, that would have been the biggest one. Because you can talk about who deserves it and you can talk about the vulnerable all day long and you can talk about the justice of God and the imago Dei, who's worthy and who's not worthy and what's dignity and what's not dignity. But one thing you couldn't do was tell people that the Jews were gonna give the Gentiles exactly what the Jews thought they deserved from God as God's chosen people. So he, he ends by saying, not just how, but to whom justice belongs. It's for all people, all time, because all people are found with, have the image of God with and in them. We say it like this at CBC and a lot of other places. The ground is level at the foot of the cross because that is where the justice of God is seen most clearly. Where he deals with the pain that's caused in the world and he also restores the image of God in all of us. Through Adam, it was lost. Through Jesus, It is found the dignity of who we were created to be in and through Jesus. It's restored. Retributive and restorative justice is the heart of what God came to do. And so so he breaks this narrative in Matthew to remind people what God's all about. Not just mercy, but justice. A restoration of how things are supposed to be. And so for us, I think we can take a couple takeaways. Uh, One is, their culture is a little different than our culture. I'd simply ask the question, who are the most vulnerable in our culture? Look, I'm not saying we all need to fly to China to buy kids. That's great if you want to do that. I'm saying, who has God put in your path that's vulnerable? Start there. It could be a neighbor, it could be somebody in school, it could be somebody going through a hard time, it could be a kid that might not have a parent or two, it could be a sick person, it could be all these people. If you look up any stats on the most vulnerable in our society, it's sick people, it's old people, it's mental health issues, This isn't Asia where we really value the elderly. Like it or not in America, we get rid of the old because the new is always better. And that's a problem, you know? This is the water we swim in. (laughs) And so I'd start by simply asking the question, where do we see the vulnerable in our society? Where do we see our society rip away the dignity of the Imago Dei in others? And where do we fight to replace that? Not just the pain caused by people, but where do we fight to replace with with force because justice demands it, that people are seen in God's image. Ezekiel 18.5 is a good place to start if you want to read it in your free time this week. It lists 11 different places, some are applicable, some aren't, of what the justice of God looks like. I think of a couple at CBC. We have uh, uh, one or two people that each week, they go to Louisville, and it's called Laundry Love. It's a good ministry, and we show up, and we we pay for their clothes to be washed because there's some dignity restoration that happens there. What does it look like to give back the dignity to a people who were given dignity by their creator in the first place? It's a question we have to ask and answer. It's different than charity, it's justice. And we want to be people that fight for justice, that don't lose the idea that God will make all things wrong, right, because he cares for us deeply, but also justice is a proactive response to the relationalness of a God who gave us all the image of God in the first place. It changes the force by which we fight for those around us. I love how it ends, it says in our text, until he brings justice to victory, it's a really interesting phrase. It changes from Isaiah 42 a bit, but essentially what it's meaning is that Jesus is going to keep on, keep it on, that God's going to keep on keeping on until justice wins. In Isaiah 42, the exact quote is, he will not grow faint or be discouraged until he's established justice on the earth. So, so this is kind of the good news for us that we fight for the justice in this world, for the wrongs to be righted, and for dignity to be restored, and we don't stop. You know why? Because God's not stopping either, because it's hard. It's hard to do. It's an uphill battle in a world that says this is water, and it's not defined as God would have defined it, but we keep keeping on. We come together on Sundays and Wednesdays in small groups and we tell stories about how God really is winning, because that's the end of our story. Is God really is winning. And just because Jesus doesn't get up, means give up means that we won't give up either, because he will fight and bring justice to victory. He will not be discouraged, and neither will we until he's established his justice on the earth. The retributive and the restorative nature of what God's doing in and Through the people of God. So, the hope is this that the justice of God wins. And what we get to do is be a part of it. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful that your justice is full. I'm thankful that today, probably too quickly, we took a pretty topical view of what biblical justice is. So, so my prayer is that you just, Holy Spirit, open our eyes up to places where we can provide justice. Retributive and restorative to people in our lives that you put in our lives. A lot of small changes make big waves. So may we be a church that fight for that. Give us opportunity and give us an ability to see it and react and respond to it. Not because we should, but because that's what justice demands. So that's the mission of Christ. And as we do those things, might we join God in this battle to right the wrongs of the world. And might we say to one another, he's already won. We just get to play a part in that victory right here and right now. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.